Hello, friends. Welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coden, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. The differentiating characteristic of a good boss is self-awareness, the ability to understand and account for the ways in which your position of power influences, perhaps unduly, your employee's experience on the job. The desire to make that experience a good one and to understand and care about your role in making it happen. But for a boss to be truly great, it's humility, an ability to see yourself not as intrinsically more important than others, but as a partner and facilitator, secure enough to share your power. As someone who's resisted the hierarchies of the corporate world for my whole career, it's exciting to hear Celine Schillinger, founder and CEO of We Need Social, and author of Dare to Unlead, The Art of Relational Leadership in a Fragmented World, talk to our Ken Gordon about a new model of leadership. Not an adjustment of the boss report relationship, but a French Revolution-style overthrowing of authority in favor of an egalitarian community of working relationships that creates space for emotional investment and collaboration, the very essence of innovative work. Today, this work of overturning authoritarian relationships that underpin much of the corporate world in favor of newer, more inclusive and effective models feels especially urgent. Let's hear Celine and Ken talk through the implications for liberty, equality, and community among colleagues. Dare to Unlead is interestingly structured. And what I love about the idea that you you chose to structure it using the, the three famous pillars of the French Revolution, right? Liberty, <laughs> equality, and fraternity. Mm. How revolutionary would you say is your idea of relational leadership? Mm. Uh, it's not so revolutionary at all, I would say. It's just basic uh, common sense in a way. But it seems like we have forgotten that uh, under, we've been buried under a hundred years of scientific management and a race for efficiency that has uh, transformed the way we, we think and the way we behave um, in the workplace. And um, I think we've lost sight of uh, just very basic values that make people thrive you know, and excel, which are, I think, related to freedom and equality among people and a sense of um, chosen togetherness. So I think if we just got back to that, uh, we would change things uh, Radically, so it's not revolutionary, but it's 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 quite radical when we see what work has become today. What do you what do you think that's caused us to lose sight of those important things? What, what's gotten away? Well, indeed, uh, we've we've act we've um, implemented uh, ways of working that uh, have enabled huge progress, and so. And some of those methodologies, you know, uh, initiated by by Ford and Taylor and those those kind of people, have proven extremely efficient for a, for a while, for a long time even. So we've been used to, we've become accustomed to following those patterns, you know, and, and rules and guidelines and, and thought patterns. Uh, and indeed, they have been serving us. Uh, they've enabled, you know, mass production, um, uh, the availability of products to billions and billions of people. So, so they've been good to us, right? The, the the large company would not exist without scientific management and so on. But uh, the the question is, how well does that service now and into the future? And my 
belief is that it does it has become actually toxic and it's time to uh, invent something else so but it's hard huh? because we've been used to ways of working which have become so ingrained that we don't see them anymore but society has changed enormously the world has changed our expectations have changed we are no longer uh, the the people we were when we started to work when we joined the workforce ourselves, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, and it's really time to adopt new ways of working to uh, to serve our organizations, to serve the business uh, and to serve the, the people, to, ser- to serve us. Because, uh, yeah, we, we really want uh, different things and those different things are not supplied by the workplace today, I feel. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned when you're talking about efficiencies, you're talking about uh, Henry Ford and Taylor. And one of the things I liked about your book, and I felt some of the most passionate stuff is when we were talking about uh, Deming, you know, one of your mm. your big sort of sources and, and how you feel like people are, are have misread him, right? Yeah. And yeah. I would like to hear a little bit about about that because I, I really, I actually, I could feel your anger and disappointment about people misunderstanding the the real message of what. Yeah, it, that's what. Uh, it's such a shame. I, I knew basically nothing about Deming myself before joining the quality department of a large pharma company, which was the topic of our previous conversation a few years back. And I was uh, invited by my manager, the chief quality officer, to read Deming. And I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be outdated. It's uh, it's a bit old. And I was stunned, really. I was stunned reading his books by how modern his thinking was. And not just modern, but um, very advanced <laughs> as compared to what organizations do, which is uh, organizations tend to divide, to, to split, to segment the work, the people, the tasks. And Deming instead uh, invited us to consider the system, to consider the whole, and to really pay attention to how well the system works together. And this is I don't think it's ever discussed or it's not top of mind in organizations. I can tell you definitely not. And it's uh, the way we work together is hampered by all sorts of um, uh, by internal competition, Mm -hmm. by segmentation of tasks, um, which has uh, again produced great uh, uh, productivity benefits, but which those benefits are coming to an end. Uh, We've, we've, milked <laughs> what could be milked from from that approach and and now it's just generating toxic um, results output outcomes so so yeah i think we we really need to get back to those the essence of that kind of message which is related to system thinking and to uh, holistic uh, approaches to to work which are really what we need in a complex world uh, as as ours today now, speaking of essences, you uh, quote, in addition to uh, Deming, you quote the great Albert Camus, and you say, yeah. bell, therefore we exist. Mm. You add this gloss. This phrase could sum up the essence of this book. Yeah. It's a very interesting mingling of sort of existentialism and essentialism. And I, mm. I would like to know, what is it about the individual rebel that creates community? How how does yeah. this fit into it? It's, it's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Camus is a, a, a 
treasure trove of, of wisdom. And uh, although he's not here anymore, his ideas are, are guides for us for a very long time, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And this idea of uh, individual rebellion that creates community is, um, yeah, fundamental, I, I believe. It's about um, taking a stance, seeing systems, seeing, seeing what doesn't work, at least for you in the beginning and doing something about it. And that's, and from that moment on, and if you rebel uh, against something that doesn't work for you, then there's probably other people who are affected by the same dysfunction and that are also suffering from that, uh, that, that kind of uh, problems or issues, challenges. And therefore, you by, by this act of rebellion, you sort of enter in a shared um, experience, you know, in a shared experience of misery or, or problem, whatever. And this shared experience and the need to change something for you, but also for others, is what creates community. And I really love that because I think we've been um, drawn to to bitter divisions uh, by considering that our communities, community is, you know, the people who think like me. And I, I think it is restrictive and it's dangerous. I believe that community is formed through action, through joint action. And I have personally experienced this um, amazing, fabulous sense of togetherness with people whom I'm absolutely sure voted basically the opposite of what I voted for. <laughs> and, and nevertheless, we felt this solidarity, you know, this um, um, friendship, in, friendship in humanity, this shared humanity. We, we felt it and it was in the workplace. And so I, I think the workplace has a special responsibility in mending the, you know, trauma uh, that that society has been uh, experiencing lately, which are born for a large part in the workplace. I believe that because people are precisely disrespected, not listened to, not not seen, not considered, uh, and are mostly shaped into into flock of sheep or into robots. I think this is creating. A large part, in larger part, the, some of the problems we see and that that are expressed through the ballot. That's 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 fascinating. And uh, I, I, one of the things I like about your book is that you, it's very personal, right? It's very much yeah. built out of your dramatic experience as a mm -hmm. as a change agent at Sanofi. Could you please tell our listeners just a, just a little bit about the outline of that story? Yeah, the the outline of that story is. Um, it's quite simple. I started my professional experience in small size, mid-sized companies, mostly in Asia. And then I joined, so very, very entrepreneurial, you know, fast moving. And, and I, yeah, basically I, I, I didn't ask, you know, myself any existential questions. That's also <laughs> maybe linked to the age. You know. <laughs> I was young and everything was possible. And then I joined the big company. It could, it was Sanofi, but I, I'm sure it would have been probably the same elsewhere in any other big company, I, I assume. 
And there progressively, I, I felt the weight of the system, um, of, an, of an antiquated system, basically, uh, a very conservative approach to, to things. And um, at some point, I rebelled. <laughs> I rebelled, and my entry point into active positive rebellion i would say was um the, the fight for diversity for a greater diversity in the workplace so that society would be more or better represented in the, the decision making uh, levels of the company and from that point i realized the untapped so i basically uh, triggered a community and it was something that was totally new to me and leveraging the social networks and tapping into people's passion and sense of purpose and desire to contribute uh, we we overcame hierarchical divisions, functional divisions, and we made things happen. Maybe not that big in the beginning because it was purely grassroots. My first experience was purely grassroots, and that's where I discovered the limits of a purely grassroots approach, by the way. Yeah. But um, the this experience changed us. It changed us, the activists. We realized we had more power than we thought we had. And it was a very transformational experience. And from that moment on, so it was about, 10, 12 years ago. From that moment on, I have not stopped to try to replicate this approach, this pattern, and implement it in the service of business objectives. Because I, I knew, I, 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 I saw from the beginning that kind of engagement, this energy I could see in action, it meant money. It is, it is a business um, enabler, a very strong one. And uh, it's also a, a humanity, a passion enabler. So uh, I'm following, you know, uh, I'm trying to kill uh, two birds with one stone. <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, it's a win-win. Oh, it's, a, it's a winning uh, approach for companies and it's a winning approach for employees. So I'm, I'm really extremely passionate about that. So I've tried several, I've experimented this approach under several uh, settings at Sanofi first. And then uh, eventually four years ago, I left uh, Sanofi and set up my own company and have been uh, since then helping other companies in other industries implement this kind of approach too, either at a large scale or at a small scale. And guess what? It works every time. It's quite amazing, but <laughs> and so I'm I'm like, why don't more organizations see that? What's uh, what's standing in front of? Uh, and so that's why I wrote this book. <laughs> Let's talk then now about working with clients and mm. how you convince them that relational uh, leadership is the way to go. That it works every time because. Mm. You know, corporations are not idealistic. They are pragmatic. Yeah. They will do what's working. Yeah. They're less interested in doing the right thing than they are doing the effective thing, which means, mm. you know, the revenue generated thing. How, yeah. how do you make the business case for mm. what, what, mm. what do you what do you say to perhaps skeptical? So I have, I have tons of uh, examples and stories, real life stories. You know, stories I, I was an actor in. Uh, so I have those. I have figures. I have metrics. I have KPIs. I can. It's very easy to, to make the business cases. That's the easiest part, I would say. The most difficult is to have leaders 
accept the risk on the one hand, because uh, engaging people, creating community engagement at scale, etc., means letting go a little bit of their um, certainties, of the certainty of results. You know, um, accepting surprise is a very difficult move for for human beings in general. I think we we all you know crave for control. We want to know what happens next, <laughs> and especially for leaders with responsibilities, with you know a lot of you know accountability and people they they must uh, they are accountable for so this is this is one aspect that makes it difficult another aspect is sharing power yes sharing power is very easy for some for some people it, it's like of course you know they they realize like from the moment i explain stuff they say yeah of course it, it's uh, i get it totally and and i'm happy to go that way and others don't get it <laughs> and that's why I, I i smiled when you used the word convinced i i hardly convince anyone mm -hmm. uh, i only uh how can i say help some people uh realize that it is possible yes what they felt what they feel you know in, inside is actually possible and is but is delivering value but others don't want it yeah yeah do you have so, you sort of have to do a quick diagnostic and saying who's going to be enthusiastic who's on the, yeah. who's on the fence and who's a no yeah yeah and one of the stories i, I keep in mind uh is uh, uh, the story of working with a client which i thought had understood what i brought my proposal was detailed enough, etc. And um, mid-course, we realized that uh, there was a fundamental philosophical uh, disagreement. And this, uh, the CEO of that company just wanted to hire me as a loudspeaker towards his employees, you know, to, to help him uh, spread the message, so talk to uh, from a, you know, water, you know, waterfall, typical cascading kind of approach, which is what I, I loathe. I hate that. I think it's completely ineffective. And so I had to, to I had to say, I'm sorry, but uh, I cannot uh, continue. This is totally against uh, what I offer and against my values. And so that was a failure in a way for me. I, I realized that I had not evaluated uh, correctly the uh, desire of that client in the in the very beginning. So that helped me. That gave me an additional motivation to write this book. <laughs> I hope that now uh, things are, are laid out. Uh, clearly enough and at length uh, i don't know what you think about it but uh yeah it's uh, 274 pages i hope that will make things clear enough that's awesome so the the book helps um, to vet out um the clients you do and don't yeah, work with. exactly exactly <laughs> okay now here's a, that leads to this next question you write in the complex adaptive systems we live in, there is no such thing as simple causes leading directly to simple effects yet mm -hmm. our brains crave such reasoning and one of the underlying themes of your book is that personal and organizational leadership is difficult and complex and requires mm. a lot of people yeah. who seek liberation, right? Mm. How do you know, how do you ensure that you're not asking too much of too many? Like it, you really have to be committed to make the kind of changes you're proposing. And yeah. how do you um, 
How do you manage that? How do you help people and organizations manage that? Hmm. Uh, I think it's by splitting the, the. I wouldn't. No, actually, splitting is not a bad. Uh, is is a bad word. It's not what I'm. By by spreading, I would say that's a better word. Mm-hmm. By spreading the work, but it's enabled by by passion, by communication, by uh, joint um, joint activism in the sh- in the service of a shared cause. Um, you you make work lighter. Actually, it alleviates. It removes the pressure of um, of bad leadership. It removes the pressure of inhuman uh, leadership, of, uh, which is this is this enormous burden currently that makes so many people sick, and that makes so many people. Uh, unwilling to return to the office <laughs> because uh, they've discovered another way of working you know quietly at home without being watched being what it without being controlled and, and uh, or yelled at or, or despised you know or humiliated uh, which is a, a very common experience at work so what I suggest is instead of um, instead of forcing uh, um, instead of making work harder and even more, you know, pressurized, uh, instead of pressurizing people, I suggest we create collective capacity, more collective. So we focus on connecting the system to more of itself. I use mm-hmm. that uh, that approach quite a lot, but also uh, it's about building social capital and really nurturing this social capital as the um, fertile soil that will enable the whole system to flourish. And even in some directions that are not expected, and this is where innovation uh, comes from, but really uh, it takes uh, shifting our our approach i think th- everybody says that now nowadays you know we need to shift the, our approach from uh, a machine kind of thinking to an ecosystem kind of thinking so uh, this is nothing it's nothing new however in ha- in the way people work encouraged by performance management systems by you know all these artifacts very few people have dared changing mm-hmm. or, or challenging um, if if we yeah in in practice very very few organizations work that way we all use the same words you know change agency ecosystem whatever use your emotions at work etc but in practice no one ever does, does that yeah which is why it's it seems like you're asking for a very difficult and unusual thing to happen and so yeah and sometimes i have to pinch myself you know i think yeah have i dreamt all that is that a fancy you know illusion or something but no i've lived that i've i've gone through those experiences and i can tell you they're very real and that's why i'm i'm so keen on staying in touch with my former co-workers you know they have lived that as well and they have been changed by those experiences so it is possible i i I just um i just wonder why not more people dare going that way it's it's actually very easy now you uh, you write uh can work ever be envisioned as a democracy of equals Mm -hmm. how can networks enable work that is stripped of domination and submission relationships and Mm -hmm. the form of relationship 
of leadership can uplift both people and business. And what would that look like in practice? You talk a lot about the power of networks. Hmm. What I'd like to ask you about is not just what networks can do, but maybe what they can't do in a working business context. What are the limitations hmm. of networks have you found? Hmm. Well, I find that the limitation of, uh, of networks uh, in uh, different arenas, but one of them is the fragmentation of conversations, the fragmentation of, uh, of, of action. And that's why the book is, structure, is structured in three parts. Uh, and that's why, you know, fraternity comes right after. This fraternity, this togetherness in action is a way to keep the network together. The network is wonderful, is an amazing opportunity to remove at least partly those patterns of domination and submission. Because there's, there's no... There's no domination without submission. Huh? We, uh, it, it's easy to blame, you know, the the, the, the bad leaders who act as uh, autocrats. But we have the autocrats we deserve. Huh? Uh, it's it's uh, it's also in in our. I, I've seen so many people asking permission for everything, and believing that they needed to, and not taking a single little risk. Uh, although you know. It's actually easy to do so. But anyway, yeah, so networks have this uh, amazing uh, opportunity or create this amazing opportunity. And coming from my, my, my point of view is the one of a woman in the workplace and um, a white woman, a privileged white woman, mm -hmm. nevertheless a woman, therefore a, a part of a, a minority. And this minority experience Uh, enables a, a different um, perspective on the system. You, you, you see what what's what doesn't work, <laughs> and that's uh, that's why the entry point into the the, the rebellion that Camus talks about is uh, possibly possibly easier uh, from with that experience. But anyway, and networks have been an amazing amazing opportunity to. Um, to, to, to get, get out of those domination submission patterns and uh, expand my horizons and so on. But now I, I feel there's a need, especially with what we've seen with social networks and yeah. how toxic they have become in many ways, I feel there's a, this need for fraternity stemming from joint action Uh, is really critical. So I think, yeah, you, I offer three pathways to reinvent a practice uh, of, of work that is more respectful of business and of people, but the three go together. You, you cannot just take one and uh, leave the others aside. Yeah, I was really glad to see in your book, you're sort of raising uh, your doubts and skepticism of social networks um, mm. because it's, it's very easy to be idealistic about it um, yeah. if you're just trying to get people sold on the concept rather than taking a good, hard, holistic look at it. So I thought that mm. was great and, and useful. But, and I have to ask this question because I, I wouldn't have asked this 10, 15, 20 years ago, but fraternity is really a, ter is a term of brotherhood. And yes. It, and it's an exclusionary term. Exactly. And I understand that mm. it, there's a deep connection to French history and, and, mm. and you're talking about it in a universalist term. But mm. frankly, when you say fraternity – You're talking about the. We're talking about brothers, and you're not yes, talking about everybody. Did, did you at any point consider the idea of, let's say, peoplehood rather than? Yeah, 
I know people who it is. Yeah, no, that no that's a paradigm. But I thought that's what. It, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great point, and I mentioned it in the I think in the introduction to that part, uh, in particular that um, it has all sorts of limitation. Um, but um, so you could replace it by community in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, but it still evokes to me this idea of um, friendship, but a special sort of friendship, and um, and so and of course since I I, I made this uh, this structure along the three uh, elements of the French uh, motto uh, a little bit for fun in the beginning, but then the more I thought about it the more um, I thought they made sense. So I, I kept it. But um, you could replace it easily by community, I, found, I find, uh, or mobilization. That, that's, um, but uh, but you're, you're right. Huh? There's a, this word is very loaded. Um, and yet it's a beautiful word. If we could all be brothers and sisters uh, at work, feel so although the workplace is not a family and we need to be very clear about it, huh? it it's not uh, pretending it's a family is is misleading is fake it's not true and it disappoints many people especially when you you get dismissed you know at the first uh, economic downturn mm-hmm. uh, you realize oh well that was not really a family in fact <laughs> but uh, nevertheless this idea of uh feeling like brothers and sisters in humanity where we spent eight hours a day mm-hmm. is very powerful. I'm with you now. One of the, one of the ways we are uh, reminded sharply that work is not a family is, is the uh, area of performance evaluations. Oh yeah. You don't like them. I don't like them. I hate them. You write the concept of performance evaluation remains arbitrary and flawed founded on the logic that it is right is the right of one person to evaluate another and subject to an array of cognitive biases. Hmm. I, I yeah. as you know, I posted that about this yeah. and people were pretty <laughs> unanimous. <laughs> Nobody likes performance. Evaluation. Nobody. And yet we uh, companies invest tons of money to improve that, to, you know, teach uh, leaders to provide better feedback. And, but no one ever questions the fundamental you know, idea at the core of this, is it right to evaluate what is, how can I evaluate? You know, I can give an opinion, but it's just an opinion. And mm-hmm. it's, this opinion is very much shaped by my own education, experiences, you know, trauma, whatever. Uh, it's not because I'm a manager and uh, the other person is in my team that I have a right to evaluate. I think it would time and, and resources would be much better spent if instead we got together as a team and evaluated our system. How, how do we work together? What is the, the quality of our, of our collective work? You know? And how can we make it better? That's what Deming also encouraged, encouraged, and by saying we should remove performance evaluation, individual merit. It's uh, it's crap. It's just a waste of money, a waste of time. It creates internal competition. It creates all sorts of frustration. It wastes wastes enormous time and, and money, but uh, it fuels a whole industry, uh, which has absolutely no interest in companies uh, dropping that. 
Do you walk into a new client and say, okay, how do you feel about a performance evaluations? And then tell them it's crap. And then (laughs) I try to, I tried to, well, I would have done that uh, maybe 10 years ago when I I loved provocation. Uh, But I realized I I got wiser (laughs) with age a little bit. And I realized that the more provocative, the more resistance you create. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm trying to instead create connection, connect around what matters to people and go step by step and invite people um, to, to think holistically more you know we're doing this oh why don't we expand our thinking to that connected part oh and what if we realized uh, what if we saw that other part is connected too etc so it's mapping this is, i speak about the rhizome as well you know yeah. this uh, under subterranean um, a network of um, that connects you know plants etc I think this is uh, super powerful to uh, visualize work that way, to realize, to visualize the connections to, yeah, other people, other pieces of work, other artifacts, um, systems, etc. And there maybe, but it has to come from people have to to realize that that by themselves. It has to. It really has to come from from them in their work in their context. You know, telling them from outside. You know, you should change this. You should should change that. Has very little impact. So that's why my work is about enabling people to do the work and to do the change by themselves. Mm-hmm. So I, I very often I have to, uh, um, but it's now become a, a habit. I think I know what should be done in this or that situation, but I refrain from saying it. And mm-hmm. I, I on purpose do not say anything about it and invite people to instead uh, come up with solutions that may be very different from what I thought in the beginning, but that will work better because it, they come from them. People um, uh, who own what they help create, and the, the real change happens in real work. These are some of the maxims I mentioned in the book. Also, I think it's very powerful. Sure. Now, change makers, and I think you get at this in the book, are not really suited to long-term corporate employee employment. Mm. You know, mm. you yourself have gone from being a corporate employee to becoming an independent, you know, consultant. Mm. Do you have any specific advice for the uh, sort of change agents and would-be change agents among your readers that, that yeah. are going to look at this and go, oh, I'd like to make change, but knowing mm-hmm. as you do, that, yeah. that doesn't mean you're going to be a lifer because that's not what yeah. most companies want. I think it's a shame huh? because uh, it's a shame that change agents eventually leave companies. Uh, they would benefit so much from keeping them. Uh, but the, the system is made in such a way that uh, it, it values compliance and conformity more than innovation and, and different thinking, independent thinking even. It's very, very difficult in organizations. So the most creative, innovative people I've met have all ended uh, leaving their, their companies, uh, which is, yeah, again, it's a shame. Now, uh, some of them feel extremely frustrated and demoralized uh, by how hard things are for them. And I have a few 
yeah, advice. Um, some advice is linked to uh, their own behaviors and how some of them contribute to their own misery. I've also wrote about that recently. It's, um, uh, in a way, uh, I mean, it's hard to not replicate the system you are fighting against. If you fight hard against a, a conservative system, etc., you sort of end up in a competition against that system. So it's a it's a fight, you know, and it's not a co construction. Um, and therefore, you can't go very far. You can impact a little bit, but not sustainably, not for a long time, and you'll create resistance, and you'll be even sadder and more frustrated, and and lots of change agents I know end up uh, in burnout and it's it's not good. So what I suggest is to really reflect on creating collective capacity uh, on avoiding to you know carry the weight of change on our own shoulders but instead um, seeing how we can create collective capacity and how we can ourselves model what we preach for, for, what we advocate for. For example, sharing power, uh, share, um, creating communities, real communities, not um, uh, tribes or, or not, uh, you know, worshipping <laughs> a group of people. You know, um, a change agent is not here to become the hero or the savior of uh, of a new system with fo with followers because then he or she just replicates the existing system right so there's a lot of things we can we can do we can also protect self protect and prepare for the time when the system says enough <laughs> you need to go out <laughs> which which may happen <laughs> and you talk about that right the, the idea mm -hmm. of developing external networks yeah you know, yeah. for that moment. External network, portable competencies, um, visibility, external visibility as a shield, as a protection yeah. against uh, internal attacks. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a strategic thinking, but there's, there's a lot of small tactical moves uh, that can help, that have, in, in my personal case, have helped me enormously. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm always willing to share experience because I know it's hard. Huh? It's it's really tough. Well, this has not been tough. This has been a real pleasure, Celine. Mm -hmm. Thank you, mm -hmm. Thank you for, for having this conversation with us. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist in the world. Celine Schillinger, it was a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Ken Gordon was our interviewer and producer. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Allison Coden. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.